This week on Wealth Track, why Dave Rosenberg's gut and research is telling him the consensus is wrong on just about everything to do with the economy and markets. In March of last year, we're pricing in the bubonic plague. Nope. Uh, and right now, we've swung the pendulum where we're pricing in the roaring 20s. Nope. Maybe the answer is somewhere in between. Dave Rosenberg's contrarian views are new this week on Consuelo Mack Wealth Track. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, Clearbridge Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. Bullishness is rampant on Wall Street. A recent Barron's Big Money poll found institutional investors holding 69% equities in their portfolios versus 18% in bonds and 7% in cash. And when asked which asset class they consider most attractive today, the answer was overwhelmingly stocks. 65% versus only 5% voting for U.S. Treasury bonds and less than 5% for gold and cash. And the consensus for the economy is bullish. After a 6.4% annualized increase in real GDP, that's without inflation, in the first quarter, Recent forecasts are for 10% GDP growth in the second quarter, 7.5% in the third, and 5% in the fourth. As for inflation expectations, they are up. Again, the consensus is that the combination of a rapidly rebounding economy, supply shortages, and tight labor market will lead to a sustained rise in prices. Well, the most prominent skeptic on that front is Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell and other Fed officials who believe the price increases we are seeing now are transitory. Are they, or is inflation making a lasting comeback? Well, this week's guest, influential economist Dave Rosenberg, is in the Powell camp on this one and believes the recent jump in inflation is temporary and that the overall bullishness on the economy and markets is wrong and will be challenged before the year ends. Dave Rosenberg is the influential, outspoken, and frequently contrarian chief economist and strategist at his independent economic consulting firm, Rosenberg Research, which he launched in January 2020. For the decade before that, Rosenberg was chief economist and strategist at Canadian asset management firm, Gluskin Chef. Prior to that, he was chief North American economist at Bank America Merrill Lynch and was consistently ranked an all-star analyst by institutional investors. His daily Breakfast with Dave newsletter is considered a must-read by retail and institutional investors alike. I began the interview by asking Rosenberg why he is convinced that the bullish consensus is wrong as he was when he went against the crowd in 2000 and 2007. I have not seen a more lopsided view towards higher rates, higher inflation, roaring 20s economic growth, uh, I'd say that this is as much a built-in, deeply entrenched consensus view as the dot-coms in 1999 
and housing was never going to correct back in 2007. It's really the consensus is that dug in and that strong, uh, but so one-sided. Uh, and the market positioning right now is with the consensus. Okay. Uh, and I think that there's just been a lot of extrapolation going on uh, from what's happening presently to what's going to be happening 12, 24, 36 months down the road. Uh, and I just don't feel there's enough of appreciation that what's really held the glue together uh, over and beyond the vaccines was a game changer, uh, was the dramatic uh, fiscal stimulus uh, right. that's been in the system. But the fiscal stimulus that we've seen has really been a stop and go nature, and it's created tremendous volatility in the data. And I think the conditions for a boom bust. So the way I see it, Consuela, uh, a lot of the stimulus that was brought in by President Biden in March has already gone into the system. Uh, I estimate that 80% of those stimulus checks uh, have already been spent. We have 20% left, uh, and then we're going to get the other impact, Consuela, which is uh, what happens after early September when these extended um, uh, jobless benefits uh, term out. Uh, and we have a plethora of people that were getting paid more to stay idle than go back to their old crummy jobs. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out. But I would say that uh, the consensus, you know, beyond uh, September, looking at the fourth quarter, uh, to me, that's really going to be the the, uh, the, the, the critical point uh, in terms of whether the consensus has built in too much growth uh, into uh, valuations. And that's really the premise behind my concern. So uh, you believe that the reopening that we're seeing, for instance, when I look at the figures for GDP growth, and I'm, I'm looking at uh, you know, things like wage growth, and I'm looking at a drop in the unemployment rate below 6%, those are all real. You're not questioning those, that that's happening because of massive stimulus and because of the rollout of the vaccinations, but you think they're going to peter out sooner than people expect. I think that a lot of what we're seeing is very transitory in nature. Of course, the Fed uses the word transitory to describe uh, the inflation backdrop, but it's also true with the economy. Uh, I mean, people fail to take into account what happened in the final three months of last year. Once the stimulus checks ran out, uh, when you're taking a look at the monthly GDP numbers, October, November, December, they actually contracted. Uh, you know, why was it that Donald Trump felt so much pressure uh, to go with another stimulus package on December 27th. That wasn't in this playbook. Next thing you know, because that shows you organically how weak the economy really is. Right. And yes, we have the reopenings. The vaccines are a huge game changer. But even on that score, uh, it's one thing, you know, when you're going from 0% open to 50% and 50% to 80%, that is a huge incremental impact on economic growth. And we're about to reach 100%. I mean, if you look at the uh, Dallas Fed's mobility and engagement index, they don't publish it anymore because they don't feel they have to. The reopening trade is pretty well fully done. We've closed that gap. Uh, an equity market technical analyst would tell you we closed that gap on a social and human basis. That's great news. But the incremental impact on growth, Consuela, that's behind us. The fiscal stimulus, most of that is behind us. And I'm not going to say we're going to relapse back in recession. But remember that the markets have com gone completely manic. Uh -huh. In March of last year, we're pricing in the bubonic plague. Nope. Uh, and right now, we've swung the pendulum where we're pricing in the roaring 20s. Nope. Maybe the answer is somewhere in between. But we swung the pendulum from bubonic plague to roaring 20s, from fear to greed. 
And if you're an investor, you know what to do when you swing that pendulum towards greed. There is just uh, too much priced in. Whether you're looking at valuations or you're looking at sentiment, we are as overbought today on risk assets as we were oversold back in March of 2020. And that's my basic premise. It's really, uh-huh. <laughs> it's, it's you know, um, is the bullish narrative wrong? Well, we'll find out in due course. Right. But there's so much of it priced in. There was too much bad news priced in at the lows. So you didn't even have to get good news. The news just had to get incrementally less bad. Next thing you know, Bob's your uncle, you're off to the races, and the bull market starts. Well, we're at the opposite end of that narrative, where the market's only priced for good news. And so if the news is just not as good as what's priced in, the market's going to go into either a pause, a topping formation, which I think has already started to happen, by the way, in the past Mm -hmm. few months, or we go into a correction phase. So my question is, it seems as if both the Fed and, you know, the Biden administration and Congress are like, they seem to be ready to prime the pump at a drop of the hat or a drop in the markets. So, I mean, is it possible, given, you know, the trillions of dollars that we're talking about already, that that they can extend this party? Well, it's it, it's situational. I, I guess you can extend the party, but right. Uh, what what what's the what's the the trigger point for that? If the economy relapses, if we get a huge setback in the financial markets, which the Fed would view as an undesirable tightening in financial conditions, right? Of course, they'll respond. We've seen them respond before. Yeah, but it's it's going to come after the fact. Uh, the Fed is always there to pick up the pieces. I mean, we, I mean, because well, we know that since I mean, the Greenspan put. Uh, was a right. phrase that was coined back in 1987. The Greenspan put, well, it became the Bernanke put, the Yellen put, the Jay Powell put. So we have these puts. But we have had bear markets along the way, and we've had corrections along the way. And yes, the Fed will be there to pick up the pieces. Um, but the question is, as an investor, do, do you want to do, do be there uh, in the process of Humpty Dumpty falling off the wall. We should be moving now into, into more defensive positioning in our portfolios, or is it you know, something that you're recommending we do incrementally. What, what's your what's your strategy? I said before, you buy the market on maximum fear and you start to uh, uh, take chips off the table, certainly buy some insurance on your portfolio when you get towards maximum greed, which I think we're in right now. So that's it. You know, you want to buy those value trades after the vaccines, after the reopening trade picked right. up. But the reopening trade is, is done. So what do you do from here? Uh, bond yields are no longer making new highs. Very interesting. Why isn't that happening? Even with all the inflation hype in the media and Wall Street commentary, how come bond yields aren't making new highs anymore? They haven't made a new high in about three months. The bond market may be telling you something here very interestingly. The fact that the yield curve has stopped steepening might be telling you that growth estimates uh, may have gone up as much as they're going to go up. So I would say that, you know, what is it in the stock market that would be appealing in an environment where inflation expectations no longer go up, uh, that we start getting a supply-side response in the economy, because right now we do have a supply-demand imbalance that's right. caused the inflation data to go up. What if the inflation data start to come down? What if the Fed is right? I think that people should be looking at the, the situation that the Fed, uh, they might be academics there, but they're not a bunch of dummies. Uh, they do have models. Uh, and so if they're right, and I think that they will be, that inflation comes back down, Bond yields will come back down. Uh, the yield curve will go more through a bull flattener than a bear steepener like it has been. I think that a lot of the value trade is over. Now, maybe there's structural issues attached to copper in particular because of the uh, greening mm-hmm. of the world. And maybe uh, oil has oil. A, uh, a, a more durable supply curve 
and the energy stocks might be good places to be. You could argue that the financials are still not expensive and would be a well-diversified way to play any sort of recovery. But I would say that in an environment where uh, interest rates, market interest rates come back down, we, you know, remember we started the year, I think, in the 10-year note yield was less than 1%. We're still sitting here today close to 160. So we've already had a very big level adjustment. Uh, so I'd say, um, you know, a lot of the things that are out of favor, uh, you know, utility stocks could do very well in that environment. Uh, the REITs, uh, I would say, uh, even the pipelines. Uh, I think mm -hmm. I'd want to have some rate sensitivity, but also I'd want to scale back into what I call defensive growth. I imagine healthcare could be part of that, even parts of technology. Because if I'm right that we're going to see downward revisions to GDP growth, uh, that's when you want to own growth stocks. When you want to own growth stocks is when growth becomes more scarce. Uh, and of course, when you had all this economic growth being priced in and growth was abundant, uh, growth gave up leadership to value. I actually think that's going to start to reverse course before the end of the year. And, and the traditional, you know, the FANG stocks, for instance, I mean, which most people own a lot of because they're in index funds. Well, look, uh, we call them the FANG stocks, but, you know, from a contribution to the economy and the capital stock and productivity. Um, you know, I don't think that I would be comparing uh, Facebook uh, and Netflix uh, to Amazon and Google. So we call them okay. FANG, but they're not homogeneous yes. stocks, uh, just like emerging markets are not a homogeneous group. Um, but uh, defensive growth, even in technology, uh, I think will be a good place to be. So last cycle, you know, the value proposition had its day, but right. it only outperformed Brief. growth 20% 20, 20 of the time. And I don't think that the fundamentals, the fundamentals that have to do with aging demographics uh, and the fundamentals of, of, of massively uh, overextended balance sheets. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, in the United States, uh, the total debt to GDP ratio and this is a statistic that nobody talks about. Everybody's just focused so much on inflation. They don't realize that one of the critical elements, why we never got the inflation in the last cycle, is because we built up so much debt. Uh, and this time around between governments and corporations, I mean, households are in much better shape. But we all own this debt. This debt is all ours, whether it's corporate, government, household, it's all ours. And it's today, it's 370% of GDP. Right. Uh, we're at a new high. Uh, post-World War II, that ratio went up 40 percentage points over the course of the past year. That's never happened before. And that's a huge tourniquet, in my opinion, when you're asking me, say, what is the one thing uh, that gives me conviction that we can't possibly go through a normal interest rate cycle uh, is because of the pernicious right. debt levels that we have right now, which are totally unstable. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, three, you know, we're, we're talking $80 trillion of debt uh, on the books in the U.S. economy. And we've never been this sensitive to interest rates before. And we've already had a big run up in market rates, which everybody seemed to be uh, cheering that this is a great thing. But with a lag, the debt service is going to have an impact on economic activity. And I think as the economy slows down, uh, yeah, the, the growth area is probably, you know, and right now it's out of favor because everybody seems to be loving the value narrative. But I think there's going to be some further mean reversion the other way over the course of the next six to 12 months. Let's address the, the debt levels right now. Of course, the, the reason maybe that it isn't such a big story is that interest rates are so low. So we don't feel the pain of, of you know, of, of paying the interest on that debt. When will that get attention and, and what's going to prevent it 
from, you know, really kind of doing us in. <laughs> you know, there's such a thing in economics. The first thing they teach you is about the law of diminishing returns. Right. And it applies to everything. There is such a thing as too much of a good thing. And, of course, we have seen this happen in Japan. We've seen this happen in China. It's happening in the U.S., and it's happening really globally to a large extent, um, that you reach, we crossed a certain threshold where uh, the incremental addition to debt actually yielded slower and slower growth. Yeah. I mean, look what happened. I said once again, all the Fed tried to do, the Fed just tried to normalize interest rates. Powell comes in in January 2018, says we're going to start the process of normalizing interest rates. God forbid he raises rates four times in eight meetings in 2018. And normal back then, as I said, normal today is a lot lower, a lot lower uh, than 3%. But back then, the Fed thought 3% was normal. We're going to normalize interest rates. He came, he came within 50 basis points of that. And then the economy and the markets rolled over. Right. So what does that tell you? It tells you this. It says that the Fed could not normalize interest rates because the economy was not normal. And is it any different today with the debt ratio even higher than it was back then? Um, so that's when you talk about fragility. I was talking about that all last cycle. What does it mean? What does it mean? I mean, this is not a new story. Why did it take the Fed six years to raise interest rates in the last cycle? Oh, well, Donald Trump told us longest economic cycle of all time. The unemployment rates for, you know, Hispanics and African-Americans right, no. and youth and females all at all time lows. And they, they, the Fed took six years. And even when they tried to normalize, they couldn't normalize. And the question is great that you asked, what is, what is normal? Yeah, the yeah. fact of the matter is that the economy has not been normal for a long period of time. And now we've added on even more debt to the situation. And that's the inherent instability. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll say that if for those people that think interest rates should rise because of this near-term and current uh, inflationary blip that we're seeing, be careful what you wish for. Uh, because, oh, because if they do, the debt is, it'll kill us. I mean, and it's not the level it's just... of interest rates that matters when it comes no. to the shift in debt servicing costs. Right. It's the change. It's the change. Right. It's not the level. So yeah. uh, so it is a very precarious situation. Uh, on top of that, what has me concerned is as everybody's focused on uh, restaurants and theme parks and airlines, airlines uh, and entertainment, um, you know, the service sector spending that uh, we couldn't do anything about during the pandemic. And of course, those are the areas of the market that have come back the most, mm -hmm. the big part sure. of the value trade. Um, that's $500 billion dollars. And you know that's the that's the share, the share of GDP is three to four percent. I've never seen a recovery that was everybody's so excited about a, what a restaurant and theme park induced economic recovery. I've never so seen that before. So that's not going to do the big well, economy it's, lift. It's such a small share, but yeah. but nobody talks about is the fact that you know when you when you take a look at spending on durable goods, uh, housing, home improvement, furniture, autos. I mean, because we couldn't spend money on anything else, and we had all these stimulus checks, people went wild. Pe pe people went wild on spending. We, we, it, it, you, in a normal recession, no matter whether it's caused by an exogenous shock or a domestic shock, usually durable goods spending goes down in a recession. It just mm -hmm. skyrocketed sure. last year, way above trend. Now, what people don't see is that spending on goods, spending on stuff, merchandise, uh, is a five trillion dollar market. It's it's ten times bigger. And the question mm -hmm. becomes: Like, are you going to buy yet another dining room table, but to replace the one you bought last year? How many swimming pools are you going to put into your backyard? Are you actually going to go to the barber 
five times a week in the next year to make up for the fact he didn't go to the barber last year. People talk about pent-up demand and services. Again, that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Okay. But there's going to be, obviously, and it's already starting, a big swing towards travel and towards tourism and towards right. uh, eating out. But it's a very small share of the economy for the attention it gets. But what about all the stuff that we already front-loaded? We borrowed so much growth from the future, and it's such a bigger share of the economy. I'm looking at all the people talking about all the data, all the inflation data. Well, of course, you know, when you have a situation where the year-over-year growth rate in consumer spending on durable goods is 60%, and the production, while it's come back, is only up 20%. Well, of course, we created such a huge mismatch between supply and demand. Right. The supply will come back. But what about the demand? So there are some real imbalances in the economy that need to be rectified, and that's going to take a long time, Right. This was the first global pandemic in over a century. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's created enormous volatility in the data. Uh, and so in both directions. You know, it's interesting on the inflation debate, uh, the initial hit from the pandemic uh, was on demand relative to supply. And we had three months of negative CPI readings last year. We had a temporary deflationary development. Uh, now demand, because of the reopening and the stimulus that we've had, has... Uh, has risen much more sharply than the supply side has on the reopening. I just don't understand. The deflation hit was temporary. Oh, but to most market pundits, oh, the inflation is going to be permanent. Uh, I just don't understand that logic. Okay. Uh, as the, the the supply will come back, the demand, and a lot of this we're seeing really when you think about it on the on the on the good side, uh, and it's because we've never seen spending like this. It was unprecedented. Unprecedented to be seeing 60% growth, 60, not 16, on durable goods expenditures. Uh, and the question is, how much growth did we borrow from the future right. on all this stuff? And you're uh, now, saying we the, th- you the, think we borrowed a lot of growth from Tremendous. The future, years years worth of durable be... goods expenditures because right. of the pandemic. Yeah. Now, of course, uh, we've got this uh, reopening. People are going to the ball games. They're going out to eat. They're flying again, but we're going to fill that gap. Like I said earlier, right. we're going to fill that gap. But we're, where are we going to go afterwards? We're going to fill that gap, and then we're going to stabilize in the domestic services industry. We're going to fill the gap that was emptied last year because of the pandemic. And then what's going to happen on the durable goods side? Because there's, no, there's only pent-down demand there. That's something else. Over beyond, over beyond the fiscal cliff... Now, people come back and say, oh, they'll just continue to replenish. Well, we'll see. We'll see if we continue to get more and more and more short-term fiscal stimulus. That's really all it is. And people talk about infrastructure. Well, it's interesting, infrastructure, I mean, you capitalize that over like eight or ten years. It doesn't have much of an impact on on GDP growth in terms of the business cycle. So if there's one investment that we should all own in a long-term diversified portfolio at this point in the cycle, what would it be? Well, I'll tell you right now that, that it's very interesting because there's the market-based inflation expectation measures and there's the Cleveland Fed has its own inflation expectation model. It's an actual model. It's not just the CRB index. And if inflation expectations end up converging on the Cleveland Fed model, uh, we're going to get a huge rally at the long end of the yield curve. 
Uh, so right. I would say that right now, right now, and this is the surprise and maybe mm -hmm. the most out of consensus forecast. But if I'm right that the economy slows more precipitously and that the inflation expectations that right now the Fed is ultimately right. I mean, this is a bet on the Fed being right, but I am betting with the Fed. The rally at the long end of the Treasury curve will be spectacular. So uh, the 30-year bond, or if you want to add more juice, you'd want to be long uh, the 30-year zero-coupon bond. But that is my out-of-the-box favorite investment idea for the coming 12 months. And, and, and we're talking about double-digit uh, appreciation, if that's the case, right? Yeah, and just in the, just in the plain vanilla long bond, uh, if that math ends up playing out, that the Cleveland Fed's inflation expectation model uh, is going to be right, and what the markets got priced in is way too aggressive on inflation, mm -hmm. the total return is going to be roughly 25% of the long bond without taking right. on any equity risk. To me, that's my favorite trade. Dave Rosenberg, always a pleasure to talk to you and, um, and certainly listen to the conviction and the evidence that you present in supporting your views. So thanks so much, Dave. Thanks for having me on. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is prepare for something else happening besides the consensus view. Dave Rosenberg mentioned his mentor, Bob Farrell, Merrill Lynch's legendary former technical analyst, who has a famous list of 10 market rules. Number nine is when all the experts and forecasts agree something else is going to happen. We just discussed the consensus view, which is pro-inflation, pro-economic boom, pro-bull market. You should have some investments in your portfolio in case that doesn't pan out, like defensive growth, including big U.S. tech companies, consumer defensive companies, utilities, and yes, some exposure to long-term treasury bonds, which will appreciate if interest rates fall. Anti-consensus investments can provide portfolio diversity and some downside protection during market pullbacks. Well, next week in a WealthTrack exclusive, U.S. Treasury bond manager Robert Kessler will share his strongly held contrarian views. In this week's extra feature, Dave Rosenberg explains how he has withstood considerable pressure from colleagues and clients to change some of his unpopular forecasts over the years. Please keep following us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thanks for spending your precious time with us. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.